This week on Writers, Inc. Well, I'll say that the show I just mentioned, which will be premiering probably in October, is called The FBI Declassified. And it is the real men and women, the real agents, the real analysts, the real bomb technicians, the real computer analysts who are telling their story. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Well, man, congratulations. <laughs> Big Thank news. You. Big news. Yeah, my, my head is, is spinning right now. Um, you know, like I, I've been hitting the refresh button on Amazon for the last two weeks, which <laughs> you've, you've known. And like, I'm, I'm, you know, loading up KDP spy and, and, you know, publisher rocket, like all these different things, trying to figure out where we're at. Um, and, and it's been difficult to do because obviously Patterson sells in a lot of places other than just Amazon. Um, so like all that stuff has to be figured in, um, in New York times, they announced their list, I guess on five o'clock or at five o'clock on Wednesdays. Um, so I was on that page too, just hitting the refresh button. And then my, my daughter, um, like she wanted to like build a pillow for it. So like I was like, build, <laughs> I put, the, I find I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to put the phone down. And I, you know, this was like maybe two minutes to five and I just built a pillow for it. And then all of a sudden my phone just lit up, uh. um, you know, like just emails and texts. And then my agent started calling and then, um, you know, then right after that, I got the call f- from Jim. Um, so yeah, we, the, the, the bottom line, we hit the list. Um, number two, um, on wow. combined print and ebook, um, number three on hardcover, um, and then a, a bunch of other ones, like all at the same time, like it's the number one book at Barnes and Noble. It's number three over at Apple. Um, oddly it's number 19 on the Amazon. Um, you know, they've got like a bestseller chart, which only, they only update once a week. Um, and it, it apparently doesn't coincide necessarily with your, your daily Kindle number. Um, cause oh. I think the book is, the book is at like number 50 in the Kindle store, but it's number 19 on the Amazon bestseller chart. Um, so yeah, all this stuff started coming in and then, you know, authors that I know, you know, like, I, I don't even know how people find like found out <laughs> you know like I'm, i i mean because i i don't normally review the new york times list i guess a lot of authors do but mm-hmm. um yeah i mean just crazy you know emails coming in from you know people that i've read my entire life that i've looked up to just you know with congratulations and stuff like that and it, it's been very surreal yeah that's fantastic wow yes so i i pulled some stats um just because i figured our, our audience would be you know, curious as to what it, it actually takes um, to, to do this. And um, so I pulled, um, there's a, a, a system called uh, BookScan, um, which most of the hardcover, you know, any kind of print edition, it basically shows up on here. So the book itself, it sold as of yesterday, BookScan was reporting 22,240 hardcovers because um, they, they only report print. Um, now we ended up at number two. So I pulled, um, the, the second um, book that, or the book that, that beat me out, um, by Jody. Um, and now I'm drawing a blank on her, her last name. Um, but she, she actually sold 31,000 copies of the hardcover. 
um, from an ebook side, it was difficult to kind of piece that together because there's no real source for it. Um, but if I, you know, if I'm to believe like Publisher Rocket and some of these these various things, we sold somewhere around thirty thousand ebook copies. Wow. So roughly, you know, fifty some thousand copies in general floating around, um, which is, you know, it's it's a lot on any given day. Um, yeah, I, I've looked at the New York Times list in the past over the past couple of weeks, and you know, I'm, it, you know, a lot of this depends on what week you land, um, because there were some weeks where you know, sixteen thousand copies was more than enough to secure the number one spot. Um, so it just really, de- you know, it's determined a lot by you know who else you're coming out against on on any given week. Um, but that that's a you know a, a much bigger number than I actually thought because you know as an as an indie author like you know we, I think we're all trying to figure that out like what yeah. does it take to actually get on there, um, and the sales themselves are are very diverse and that that seems to be very important for the New York Times. Um, you know we we've got you know big sales numbers from the the box stores um, you know like Costco and BJ's and uh, Walmart and Target and uh, all all those guys as well as the you know the various bookstores. So it's just it's all across the board. So like the book never you know even cracked the top top 10 in the Kindle store. Um, you know, it, it came close. I think it was like number 18 or 19 or something at one point, and it's been hovering around number 50. Um, but that just shows, you know, what kind of weight, you know, the New York Times puts on other sources other than Amazon, which I, I think Dean Koontz could probably attest to. And I'm, I'm trying to get him on the air at some point to actually talk about this, because with him being on an Amazon imprint, um, you know, he's selling some crazy numbers, but, you know, he hasn't hit the New York Times list since he, he inked that deal, Yeah. Um, you know, because the bulk of his sales are through Amazon. Yeah. Do you have any sense of how this plays out in the next couple of weeks? Like is, is, is the biggest week the released week or, or can it, you know, how, how does that change over the next couple? Um, you know, this is all new to me, <laughs> so I, I'm honestly not sure. So I'm asking a lot of those same questions, um, you know, of, of the editor and, 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 you know, Jim and anybody I can get on the phone. Um, and you know, for a lot of people don't know, because like, I don't know what's actually debuting next week. Um, our sales are still really strong. Um, I'm sure actually landing on the list probably gives it a, a big bump. That's what I would um, think too. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, so we're going to have to see like if next week was one of those weeks where, you know, there, there isn't a big release, then there's a good shot of either maintaining the same position or, or possibly even hitting the number one slot. Um, but, you know, this is very similar to like, you know, indie authors, you know, you, you tend to stack your pre-sales, you know, going into, a, a, you know, the, we basically had the same thing. I mean, we hit the the ground running with, you know, I mean, just guessing maybe 15,000 or so, you know, already in, in pre-sale. Um, and, and that's a total guess because there's no way to actually for, for me to see that anyway. Um you know, so like that, that was part of that initial number. So this next week is going to base, be based solely on just sales for the week. Um, and I don't know what that means. I mean, if I had to guess, we're probably going to slip, you know, you know, just because we don't have that big number coming in through the gate. Um, but it, but it's, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, I guess it's anybody's guess at this point. Yeah, I, I'm sure this is not something that, that you would know either, but I, I would love to know the correlation between the publisher's promotional efforts and, and what the result was on the list. And if, you know, did, did, did they, you know, did they go all out in week one or are they, are their promos lined up for the next couple of weeks? Like that's, that's an interesting variable too. Yeah. Well, I've got an NDA that's probably five inches thick that I, <laughs> I signed before this whole project came about. Um, I can tell you they've got a very extensive marketing plan um, and it, it continued, um, the, the, I think, two weeks uh, after launch. I think it was was still going on. Um, I'm, I'm getting texts and I have been of, you know, from people and from fans and from family that are seeing television spots running, um, you know, Kindle lock screen ads, Facebook ads, you know, just all over the place. Um, you know, and that's coming from, you know, not just here, but, you know, in the UK and other places, too. It's Yeah. 
yeah. you know, it's not just a U.S. thing. It's, it's hitting some of the other lists as well. Um, so I, it doesn't look like they're taking their foot off the pedal. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, I, whether they could, you know, tell us, you know, like if we had access to that, I'd love to know, you know, like what they thought, like Facebook generated as far as sales, what they thought, you know, television ads generated as far as sales. Um, at Target, you know, Patterson did something that, you know, virtually nobody else could do. Like they did a buy one, get one free of James Patterson books oh. uh, for, for a week or two over at Target. Um, you know, that kind of thing has got to be huge. Um, the book itself released on a Monday, you know, which is a little odd, you know, most, most items release on a Tuesday. Um, I don't know how that played into everything. I, I don't know if it gives us an extra day worth of data or if it just, you know, kind of all comes out in the wash. Um, you know, there, there's so many moving parts, um, you know, but he's, he's hit this list so many times, you know, like they've just got this machine that's, that's in place. And, you know, it, it might, at this point, they might just kind of do everything and, you know, cause they, they've got a pretty good feeling of where the book is going to end up and the sales are going to cover the cost. So it's, it's right. worthwhile. I know when I launch a book as an indie, I mean, I, I know what my, my numbers are going to be. I know what the book is going to probably generate for me income wise. And, you know, I, I base my, you know, my spend on, on that number. I'm sure they're doing something very similar, just on a much bigger scale. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the big question is, did you get your words in today? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at like 400, um, which, which is horrible. Um, I, I finally slept, which was good because I, you know, I, I haven't been sleeping. You're just wondering, you know, is the book going to hit the list? Is it going to do this? You know, what, where, if it does, where is it going to hit? And, and honestly, like, I think, I, I don't know if we, we talked about this on the air or off the air, but like, for me, like, I honestly think would I would have rather hit it like number seven, you know, because like number two is like, it's just so close to yeah. number one. <laughs> and, and there's such a big difference, at least in my mind, you know, with what you can put on the cover of your book, you know, yeah, now I can put I'm a New York times bestseller, but it's so much cooler to say you're a number one New York times bestseller, <laughs> not quite as cool to say you're a number two, New York Times bestseller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was joking around with my wife about it last night, and it's like, yeah, but you can tell people that you have the the second best selling book in the country right now. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you're right about that. That's that's a better way to look at it. Yeah, um, for sure. But yeah, I think even my agent, she's like, I I know you, and I know your aspie mind. You're you're looking at this, and and you're thinking, okay, celebrate for three minutes. Now, how do right. we hit number one? Yeah, I knew. Um, it's funny. Like, I knew you. Like, I knew you got words in today. I know. You, I knew you weren't going to say zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had to. I mean, because it, it helps me clear my head you know yeah. just it, it's one of those things that it, it, it helps keeps me grounded awesome man that's so great i can't wait to hear more about it I, i'm sure the next couple of weeks are going to be just as exciting yeah yeah it's been a wild ride for sure yeah <laughs> all right so what's going on with you before we get into oh nothing nearly as exciting let's get to the guest <laughs> it right. feels so anticlimactic after that conversation <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've got uh, Betsy Glick on this week, right? We do. Yeah. We got the FBI. The FBI. <laughs> um, I'm sure this is going to be enlightening because, you know, anybody that that writes in this world, um, or even if you just, you, you skirt it a little bit, um, you know, a lot of authors don't take the time to, to actually, you know, reach out to the FBI to get their facts straight. They, they base it on what they've seen in television, what they've seen in movies. And obviously that's, you know, already stretched pretty thin, you know, before it gets to that point. Um, Betsy's got a, what I consider to be one of the coolest jobs at the FBI. And she's the liaison, you know, between, you know, film and TV and authors and basically the general public when they need to understand how the FBI handles a particular situation. She, she's the go-to person. So if you're writing a book and you need to know how the FBI would do X, you can send an email over to her team and, and she will research it and she will get back to you and, and give you those facts. Um, I've got a lot of friends that work for the FBI and you know, their jobs aren't like that. They're boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, most, most agents. Yeah. I mean, because like, first of all, if, if you wanted to be an FBI agent, the last degree that you actually want to get is, is in uh, criminal. 
um, you know, criminal investigation or something along those lines. What the FBI is really looking for is they want accountants, they want lawyers, they want, you know, people that can, you know, basically they mirror image the real world um, just under, under their umbrella. Um, you know, on, on TV, the FBI agents are never an accountant. They're never, you know, a biologist. They're never this or that. They're always, you know, former cops or whatever it might be, or military. And, and you can obviously get into the FBI with that. Um, but you're going to be, you know, doing real world problems, you know, researching accounting fraud if you're in, in white collar and, and things like that. You know, the, the rule of the serial killers, like, I mean, you could, if you go on Google right now and, and type in list of serial killers, there's only been so many, Yeah. you know, like the FBI does deal with that, but it's a very small percentage of their, their overall you know, umbrella that they, they look at. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's, she's got a fantastic job and the fact that she gets to field all this, I'm sure it stays interesting every day. Yeah. It should be a great conversation and I'm sure very helpful to anyone who's writing anything contemporary that has to do with law enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's get into it. Here she is, Betsy Glick. What is your most wild, unbelievable FBI story that you can tell us? Well, actually, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me was at Thriller Fest. So I was at the opening networking reception and I was giving out little business cards or uh, information cards that had our website for writers to get help. And I was talking to writers and a woman came up to me and she said, are you with the FBI? And I said, yes, I am. And she asked me, well, why are you recording everybody's conversation? And I said, what? She said, well, I see that thing in your ear and it's going into the pocket. And I was like, well, that's actually my hearing aid. But she thought, <laughs> she thought I was recording everybody. I said, you have just given me the perfect example of why my office exists to help people understand that we don't just walk around recording everybody. We, we, you know, we have procedures and frankly, most people's lives aren't that interesting. Although Thriller Fest might be an exception to that. Yeah, that's true, right? You, you could eavesdrop on the right conversation and it might, it might be worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Why don't, then why don't we start with talking about, um, sort of what, what role you play for the FBI and, and why writers might be interested in what you do. Sure. So my office is in the Office of Public Affairs and our role is to help writers, long form features, books, documentaries, movies and television show to help them depict the FBI accurately. And I say accurately, it's not always positive. Some people paint a broad brush and say, oh, you only help is positive. But we've helped Project with Waco. We've helped with Robert Hansen. You know, those were not the Bureau's brightest moments. But the reason we do that is we know that if people understand how hard the men and women work, what we do and why we do it, it might make a difference if somebody knocks on their door at some point and asks for assistance. And if they understand who we are and what we do, they might be more willing to help us. Yeah, good point. So... Let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, what happens if you consult with someone and and then you see the the movie or the television show and they either ignored your advice or willingly went against it? Like, what do you do in a situation like that? Shrug your shoulders and go, okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's um, it, it, we offer the information with no strings attached. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to be realistic. 
uh, I'll do what I can. My colleagues will do what they can to sit and talk with them and give them sort of background on how we might work a cybercrime or how the behavioral analysis unit really does work up um, serial murder investigations. Um, but, you know, people sometimes just, they want to have some supernatural event or they want to have the uh, country invaded by extraterrestrials. And, you know, I <laughs> can't help them much, but, but, but I, love, I love the creativity and I love hearing what people do. And honestly, as long as, you know, they're trying to tell a good story and it engages readers, if that inspires somebody to become an FBI agent or a scientist or a, a language interpreter or a computer programmer, uh, anything like that, if, if, if it inspires people to want to work for the FBI, have at it. Well, we're excited about that. So I'm guessing you didn't work on the X-Files, for example. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was before my time, actually. I, I came to the, the FBI in 2005. Okay. So okay. that was already on the air. But actually, um, I, I think we did do some minimal assistance to the reboot which was oh. about five years ago. Yeah, right. And right. Uh, Gillian Anderson actually um, recorded a congratulatory public service announcement when FBI celebrated the 40th anniversary of women's special agents. Oh, nice. So there, there's always, you know, there's always something on the horizon that's pop culture related. And like I said, it doesn't always have to be realistic. Um, sometimes it's just creating a, a myth or uh, not a myth, but a, a mysticism and if it inspires somebody to want to come to the fbi that's great yeah yeah neat i mean i know you were at thriller fest do you find that most of the writers you work with are writing like contemporary thrillers or are there other genres or other styles of stories you find yourself working on well certainly thriller fest caters to uh people writing crime novels and, and i've helped some people with some pretty crazy plots we had one that was uh Somebody was trying to um, disrupt the traffic signal system and cause accidents. Uh, somebody else was writing about a serial killer. We had one on a, a cyber a cyber crime. We've had some bank robberies. Uh, it, there's always a variety, um, but um, you know, also one of the things that I've noticed in my 15 years, a lot of studios now are looking for IP that they can purchase and turn it into a TV show or a movie. And that includes some of the thriller novels. And, you know, from my, from my perspective, I would much rather help you when you're just starting out and creating your characters and your plot than hear about the book having been purchased for a movie and the plot is all wrong and the characters are unrealistic and there's not much I can do. So, I say, let me help you write that book that's going to get you a million dollar movie deal. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great pitch, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So can you talk more specifically about the ways in which you work with writers? Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's a very simple process. Uh, and I'll give you a, a link for a website that you can post on your page but essentially uh, a writer just needs to contact our office tell us what they're doing what what they want and specifically is there a plot is there a specific type of a case or a crime that you'd like to base your story off of that you're looking for realistic information we can set you up on a background interview 
we can help you understand the way a case was worked. Um, we can refer you to a local FBI office in your city if there's a specific um, you know, demographic or city issue that you're dealing with that we might not be able to facilitate at a national level, which is my office. Um, a telephone interview, we can direct you to uh, court documents, to publicly available other stories and books that agents and retired agents have written. We can refer you to the Society for Retired Agents if you wanna to try to track them down and talk to them about something you read about. So it's really a whole litany of small to big things that we can help writers with and, and we, don't, we don't mind trying. And sometimes the answer is, yeah, that was classified. It was never declassified and we can't help you. But if we can, then we will definitely try. Interesting. Do you charge a fee for these services? Uh, no, we do not. We do not charge any fees. Wow. And what's the, uh, what sort of capacity do you have? Like, is there a certain number of writers you could work with at one time? Would people have to like schedule time in advance to work with you? How, how does that work? Well, there, we have a very small office, um, so we ask you not to send us the entire book for us to read and comment on, but certainly um, we, you know, we probably, we probably could use as much lead time as you could give us so that we can help as many people as possible. Um, I would say, um, you know, we, when you ask us a question, we will try to find first the best expert who has that subject matter knowledge. And then we'll give them time to look at your proposal and try to come up with things that will help you. And then based on you know, how busy they are, we'll schedule something maybe two to three weeks out um, for the phone call or a background visit or whatever it is. Um, um, I would say on, an, on a yearly basis, our office probably helps somewhere between 600 and 700 projects. Um, a project could be a quick question, but also a project could be a 10-part uh, documentary series for um, one of the cable outlets. Uh, I just finished over a two-year period working with a major network to develop a six-hour, six-part docu-series about real cases. Um, and so that was certainly time intensive, um, but the end result is um, a really in-depth look and a chance to hear from some of the people that the audience doesn't always get to hear from. There is an intelligence analyst who, you know, literally found a needle in a haystack. We were looking for a serial bomber and she was able to pull a partial license plate off of a video from a security camera at a FedEx store and just happened to have, you know, the right information at the right time and remembered seeing something and was able to put two and two together. And, you know, she really was the hero of that story and she doesn't have a badge and she doesn't have a gun but she is dedicated, she is smart, and she's the kind of person we want you to have in the next thriller novel. Yeah, I would say so, maybe even as a main character. <laughs> Why not? Right, yeah. <laughs> and a female, even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, I'm sure, um, you know, if whatever, whatever your liberty to discuss, I would love to know about um, what you would consider to be really good examples of works of art that portrayed the FBI in an accurate way. Like you said, not necessarily a positive way, but accurately. Um, books, movies, TV shows, what's sort of at the top of your list? So, okay, so here's a good example of, you know, there's a flip side to everything. So the TV show, um, 
Quantico was supposed to be about agents and training. And, and we were told initially when they came to us for some information that they wanted to be a, a serious look at how hard the men and women who are trying to join the FBI work and, and their dedication. And then before the show even aired during the Super Bowl, they put a teaser of the lead female character naked wrapped in a National Training Academy flag. And then the first episode had her meeting one of the other students and fornicating in the parking lot at the airport. And I thought, hmm, what, what part of this was supposed to be a serious look at the FBI? But on the other hand, these kids were dedicated. They were gorgeous. They were fit. They were diverse. <laughs> so, hey, if it, like I said, if it inspires somebody to join the FBI, have at it, you know? Yeah. Um, but the, the things that they... Um, that they did portray, which are not accurate, would be, um, you know, agents go through really difficult training and they never get their weapons issued to them until the end of training. So they basically carry on, uh, carry around a, a realistic, a very realistic um, rubber gun. Well, in the show, they're still in classes and they're chasing terrorists around the city. And, you know, it's like, no, 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 because we want to be very diligent. We have a very stringent and difficult training. And when agents graduate from that, you know, they are ready to work, but we don't want to put a gun in their hands before that point. So that would be the flip side. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, what about a, a, a TV show or a movie where you're like, yeah, they really nailed it there. Like that was exactly what, you know, they represented it well. Well, I'll say that the show I just mentioned, which will be premiering probably in October, is called The FBI Declassified. And it is the real men and women, the real agents, the real analysts, the real bomb technicians, the real computer analysts who are telling their story. And honestly, sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. And um, it, what I find interesting is that I have sometimes found these cases that I think would make a great movie. And I'll show it to somebody and they'll go, oh, my God, we could never put that on TV. Well, there you go. So um, um, Silence of the Lambs certainly had an impact on uh, the you know, female agent in the behavior analysis unit. I, we definitely um, have some agents in my office who said they were inspired to join the FBI because of Jodie Foster. So, again, that would be an example of a positive impact that a fictional movie or project could have. Now, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this show, but I, I, in, in my, my memory, the most recent one that I thought really um, made, made the FBI the prime focus of the story was Mindhunters. Um, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, looking from the outside on, on, a, on, a, on a spectrum of like really blew it to got it really, really nailed it. Um, what would it be? Sorry about that. My other phone was ringing. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so actually one of my colleagues um, did help uh, the, the um, development phase of that show and uh, worked with the behavior analysis unit. Um, and so I think that, yes, you're, you're spot on. I mean, that was a, an attempt to, um, to incorporate as much realistic uh, portrayal as possible. So, um, you know, that, that, that is certainly somebody who, you know, made an effort um, to feel and sound authentic. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there was an extra layer of, 
of complexity involved because it was also technically a period piece. It was set in the 70s. And I'm sure the Bureau looks uh, much different now than it did uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Well, you would hope so, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes with my technology problems, I wonder, but... Um... Yeah, the the um, the uh, the FBI has very good records. We have very good photographs. We we do have an historian on staff who can help with some older stuff. Um, uh, for example, we worked uh, a lot of uh, photographs um, during the period piece on John Dillinger that uh, Michael Mann created called Public Enemies, and he wanted to know everything down right down to the the make and model of the radio that was in the truck. And it's like, well, you know, wait a minute, I don't think we had that truck at that point but anyway um it, so yeah if, if somebody really wants to be um realistic we do have resources because uh, hoover was um really diligent about creating a file system and a, a way to keep records that would uh, keep keep us over time um able to remember and record what we've done yeah yeah uh th this might be the question that you always tire of answering but it's, it's probably the one that uh, I'm most curious about. Th okay. There have to be certain myths or portrayals about the FBI that, that everyone gets wrong and you see them and you go, oh, not again. Uh, so what are those like most common mistakes that hopefully writers can avoid, those stereotypes if we call them that? Sure, um, there, there's definitely um, uh, a dirty dozen or maybe a dirty two dozen. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that the one thing that, that I think is the most irritating is, you know, FBI has no jurisdiction overseas, right? So even when we're working um, with the State Department and the embassy and our legal attache is, uh, you know, called because there's been um, a bombing of an American embassy and we need to investigate. We have no jurisdiction. We can't carry a gun. We are completely at the mercy of the host country law enforcement. Even if we want to go to well, the embassy is not a good idea, a good point because that's American. But anything that we want to investigate that's on their turf, they have to go with us. They have jurisdiction. And so, you know, when you see a movie where guy straps on his gun, hops on the plane, hops off the other side, it doesn't work like that. It's much more complex and, and in many cases much more nuanced because of the international cooperation. Um, another example would be... Um, you know, I often see people who have a murder and they want to make it bigger and badder. And so they call in the FBI. Well, we're, we're going to call in the FBI. Well, unless there's a federal jurisdiction, we have no business being there. And there are many very competent state and local law enforcement agencies that can and will handle those murder cases. The FBI would only get involved if it was a federal official or if there were a serial killer and the um, local or state law enforcement requested a behavioral profile, a behavioral, an an behavioral analyst look at the data and help them decide, you know, who create who committed this crime. So that would be another uh, another myth. And I guess uh, let's see one other one. Um, trying to think of a good one. Oh, the other one is I sort of touched on it. Um, there are many very effective coalitions where the FBI is working with the police and the marshals and we have drug task forces and terrorism task forces where all the agencies are working together. 
And inevitably, when somebody you know wants to have a book or a movie that creates conflict, they immediately make the conflict between the FBI and the state or local police. And we cannot do our job without their help. You know, and, and take an example. You know, the FBI has 56 field offices, but we are not in every city and every community around the country. And who knows the streets and the businesses and the local landscape better than the local police, right? So a lot of times we will work hand in hand with them because they can tell us things that um, they see on an everyday basis. Whereas if we're in a big city a little bit further away, we're not gonna have quite as much um, you know, minutia on that, that location. So that would be, I guess, the other example that I would point out. Mm, yeah. Is there, any, uh, is there ever a situation where the state or local officials are in so over their head or they feel so overwhelmed by the case that they would voluntarily call in the FBI? And would you, would you help in that situation? Not only would we, but I mean, that is one of our primary uh, mission uh, is to help state and local police. And we have a uh, category for cooperation, police cooperation, and it's, it, it covers an entire scope of different types of crime, whether it's cybercrime, murder, kidnapping, um, crimes against children, violent crime, um, drug trafficking, human trafficking. We very, very often will help a local police force that does not have the capability to work that investigation. And that's, that's really a, our bread and butter um, outside of an actual federal statute that has been violated that, you know, we would investigate. Yeah. So what, what kind of resources would you bring to that investigation that, that they might not have access to? Well, I mentioned kidnappings. We have something called a child abduction rapid deployment team. And uh, that's a fly team, and it would essentially help that local police force set up uh, a tip line. It would help them with any resources that they didn't have. It would help with behavior analysis. It would help them analyze the situation. Um, I mentioned also human trafficking. Um, we have um, a human trafficking task force. Um, there, pretty much any any major crime that you can think of, if, if there is a small law enforcement agency in you know, South Dakota and Utah, whatever, we, we stand ready to help them if they ask for it. And that's all they have to do is ask. And you know, the field office that's closest to that city um, you know, will do what they can to get the resources to help them. Yeah. And I'm sure for the layperson or even for writers who might not be too familiar, uh, there seem to be three government agencies that um, maybe maybe get sort of lumped into the same category. So you have the FBI, the CIA, and the ATF. C can you talk about the, the differences between what those agencies do? So the FBI is domestic. We investigate crimes in the United States. The CIA is overseas. They investigate people overseas that are looking to destroy the United States from over there. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, it's just that they primarily investigate um, crimes re relating to those three um, violations. Uh, and we work closely with all three of them um, for, for various reasons, sharing intelligence, um, you know, sometimes um, for whatever reason, it might be that after working on a case, um, parallel cases, 
uh, it might be better for the ATF to take the case, and that happens sometimes. Same thing with the Secret Service. Uh, sometimes um, they get a case. Of, um, and uh, I think that uh, in specific reference to the CIA, I think, you know, after 9-11, um, throughout the U.S. government, there was a more concerted effort to connect dots and share information and, uh, you know, make sure that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I have I have one more question for you. I think it'll be fun. Uh, you can answer it however you want. Um, we're we're living in uh, we're living in crazy times. Th things are moving fast. Uh, change seems to be the only thing we can count on. Um, for based on your experience and 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 work uh, in the FBI, what do you see as um, the biggest possible change that will come to law enforcement in say the next 10 years, whether that's a technology, whether that's a procedure, um, government funding, just what do you think could really change the game for uh, agencies like yours? I would say, I mean, first let me say that this is gonna sound funny, but I have so many historic and closed cases that I am trying to tell that I don't really get into the weeds on today's news because we cannot do books and movies and TV shows about things that are happening right now. Oh, yeah. Um, so not that I have my head in the sand, but I will say that from what I see, um, the internet, um, the use of the internet, the technology in the internet, um, the, the threats that the internet um, still has because you know, crime got ahead of the security when the internet was created. They didn't have sort of it all buttoned down before they opened it to the world. And so there's a lot of holes to plug. So I would say that that anything technology related um, is, is going to continue to grow and change. And we are growing and changing with it. And that is probably on a day-to-day -day basis the, the most um, prevalent uh, development that we have to keep up on. All right, Betsy Glick. Man, I'll tell you what shocked me the most is there's no charge for her services. Yeah, and you know, a lot of authors will go out there and they'll hire consultants, they'll you know hire people that will go through their book you know, from a fact-checking standpoint. Um, these services are free, and, and not just with the FBI. I mean, the NSA has people that do the exact same thing, the CIA, um, you know, ATF, you know, and any government agency is, is gonna have a liaison. Um, to, to work with the press and work work with authors like us. And I, I strongly encourage any author to, to get out there, you know, if you're incorporating anything like that, you know, research that, find the right person to talk to because, you know, she's got a, a team of people, you know, that they will put behind your book to make sure that those facts are correct. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think the other big takeaway for me, the, the, the lesson I have, I have to write down is don't make all of your FBI agents young and sexy. <laughs> I did. I didn't watch Quantico, but yeah, that that happens. <laughs> that happens all the time, and and you know, it's it's one of those things where, uh, God, I don't even want to get into the the Hollywood side of all this, but you know, there there's certain pegs that they want for you know for certain holes, um, when when they're casting, and you know, it, it tends it tends to be that it doesn't mirror you know uh, the FBI doesn't mirror their their reality, um, you know, and it's not just that. I mean, like she had mentioned carrying guns, like they're they're not going to 
give a gun to a student, you know, that's right. essentially, <laughs> you know, so like a, a little things like that. Um, I, I, you had, you had brought up Mindhunter that, that was probably, um, you know, I, I don't know if you've read the John Douglas books, but that's the agent that, you know, that the show is actually, yeah, I haven't based read on. them yet. I want to, yeah, they're, they're, they're really strong and, and the, the show, you know, more or less follows that. So I think, you know, if, from a modern day FBI storytelling standpoint, you know, that's probably the closest we've got out there um, to, you know, reality. Um, that being said, it takes place in what the seventies and eighties. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's still not our, our real life. Um, I did want to address one of the things that you had asked, asked her about, um, you know, she had talked about technology a little bit and how it's, it's changing things. One of the things that um, I've seen from law enforcement that is huge and I, I think it's just going to get bigger is the use of augmented reality mm. um they've they've got uh, devices now and i forget what this thing is called but they, they could put let's say there's a you know a murder and they, they take this device and put it in the center of the room um and it, and it spins and it basically captures everything in that room um and agents or law law enforcement officers can go back and they can do a, a virtual walkthrough of that room anytime they want so you know what used to be you know a long time ago just somebody taking notes you know then became photography and then became video is now turning into the ability to literally, you know, step into a crime scene, you know, 10 years later or whatever the time frame might be. Um, and, and, you know, that that's expanding even further now with the use of, of, you know, augmented reality glasses and things along those lines and virtual reality. Um, so I think that's going to be going to be huge because the, the human memory is, is terrible when it, when it comes to certain things. I mean, whether it's, you know, witness statements, um, identification, um, or just remembering certain things. I mean, our brain literally take in everything that we see, everything that we hear. Um, but as soon as that happens, your brain starts to sift through that and says, well, this is important and this part's not. And it's starts to file things away and, you know, everything, the perspective changes, but, you know, things like that can allow them to capture, you know, everything in, in perfect detail and retain it in, in that perfect detail, you know, for, for whenever it's needed again. And I, I really do see that as being a big game changer in law enforcement. Yeah, I agree. I mean, eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable and yet it carries so much weight in the court of law. So I think if you had some way of, uh, and, and I think when, like when you're talking augmented, uh, if people aren't too familiar with the technology, it's it's a layering of tech of technology over the real world. So it, it would be a situation right. where you you put on Google glasses and you, the directions, uh, the arrows are pointing you through the glasses through your vision, right? Um, or right. a crime scene where you you can project, say, bullet trajectory or blood splatter, um, and it layers over top of reality. So that that could be a, a, an incredible tool for law enforcement. Well, I mean, imagine if you could go back to like the JFK assassination, you throw on a pair of glasses and all of a sudden you're actually standing there in the crowd. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's essentially where they're, they're heading. Um, you know, where we're in the middle of that right now, that the first device that I mentioned, you know, captures everything, but you have to go through it on a computer. Um, now they're, they're toying with the idea of using virtual reality, reality glasses where you can walk through it, but you know, you're still not physically there. Um, augmented reality is basically the next step. It's a combination of that with the real world. So you can stand in an alley, you know, 10 years after the fact, and, and you can basically see the same thing those first responders saw. Um, so that's very interesting stuff to me. Um, the other thing that she pointed out, and, and it seems kind of silly, but, you know, just know your agencies, you know, yeah. if you're going to write about any of this stuff, um, people love to throw the FBI into some kind of crime drama. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, they're, they're, you know, a lot of times they're not involved. Like she mentioned, you know, that the locals, you know, typically have, you know, jurisdiction. So it's, it's going to be city, it's going to be county, it's going to be town. Um, if they get overwhelmed, the, 
will typically reach out to the state authorities. Um, FBI is usually the only time the FBI can actually come in is if that crime crosses state lines um, or if somebody asks them, you know, if, if somebody asks them for, for a little bit of help. Um, but that help is going to be, you know, on the, you know, along the lines of what she mentioned, it's going to be profiling. It's going to be, you know, the things that they're good at. They're, they're not going to come in and, and solve the crime for you. They're just going to be another tool for the, the local authorities to actually use. Um, and I would love to see, you know, books, movies, TV, all these different things get that right. Um, but it's just not as exciting, you know? <laughs> so, so I think as an author, you've got to try and figure out where that line is and try to you know, find, you know, some, keep the excitement there. If, if you do need to involve FBI, um, you know, try to just be cognizant of the fact that locals would be there too, and, and try to keep it as accurate as you possibly can. Yeah, and I think for the person on the street, it's hard to keep all the acronyms straight. You know, we, we tend to lump yeah. like the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the ATF, like those are all very different uh, divisions. Those are all very different organizations. Yeah, and, and they're adding to it, you know, all the time, too. And, and they're taking away from it, possibly, you know, the, the, those responsibilities shift. I mean, I, I, I remember when Homeland Security was created, you know, that, that came out of, uh, you know, the, the World Trade Centers coming right. down. Um, you know, so who knows what the next, you know, logical step there is, you know, we've got all these calls right now to, to defund the police and reorganize all that, you know, that may turn into another acronym, you know, yeah. for all we know, <laughs> yeah. you know, who, who knows how that's going to play out. Yeah. Great conversation with Betsy. You know, she, she's so knowledgeable and hopefully everyone knows now you can reach out to the FBI and you can get free advice on, on your, your questions. So make yep, sure you do that. I'm sure you're going to put a link in her, her cell phone number and all these different things on the, the webpage. So we can, we can light up her phone for <laughs> and send a thousand calls her way so she can you know thank us for the, the activity. Yeah. Keep her, keep her employed. Keep, keep her busy. <laughs> okay. So who do we have next week? Well, we have a kind of a special one, two punch here. We, we have uh, the FBI on this week and, and next week we have uh, Patrick O'Donnell, local law enforcement. I believe he's Michigan. Uh, he, he's a retired uh, sergeant, I think. I, I, I should have checked beforehand, but retired police officer. And now he helps, uh, he helps authors figure out um, how to work you know, um, realistic law enforcement into their novels. I think he has a series called cops and writers and he um, he's a really, he's a really neat guy. I, I think we've both met him at some point in somewhere, I think, but uh, it's going to be a fun yeah. conversation. Yeah. He's one of those guys I know I've run into at, at Thriller Fest and we've had a couple conversations off the air. Um, you know, just another resource, you know, from, yep. from the local standpoint, um, you know, and if, if you're writing a book and you don't want to reach out to these various you know agencies, reach out to your local law enforcement office because most likely they've got somebody on staff that that's willing to talk to you. Um, the only thing they can't do is talk about open investigations, but they right. can talk about closed cases. They can talk about procedure, any of those types of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Pat, and if you're a hardcore introvert and you'd rather not talk, uh, Patrick is writing a whole series <laughs> on uh, different a elements of uh, law enforcement that for writers. So um, that that'll be fun to talk to him next week about this. Yeah, I can't wait. Cool. So to our listeners, we appreciate your support, and if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.